Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his, brother-in-law, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to the, go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed, uh, still going toward the Negev. So far, our reading of God's word. Brothers and sisters, a friend of mine once had a a job driving a big landscaping truck. And one day, he was late for work, and he was in quite a hurry. And he knew that he was speeding a little bit. But what he didn't realize was that he was in a school zone. And so he was actually speeding a lot. And the cop who pulled him over was furious. And so he combed over the truck, and he gave, it, gave him every ticket he could think of. Anything he could ding him for, he gave him a ticket. And my friend was very sorry about the speeding. But he was quite devastated by the amount of the tickets. He, he was a student. He had almost no money. And he was pretty sure that the hundreds or thousands of dollars in fines would just ruin him financially. And so, not knowing what else to do, he went to the courthouse. And when he went there, he he knocked on the big wooden doors until someone answered, because he didn't really know what else to do. He ended up going in before the judge, and he knew he was guilty, he admitted it. But he just asked for the judge to be lenient, to show some mercy. He figured that he might as well ask. Because he had nothing to lose and everything to gain. And thankfully for him, the judge was quite lenient and dropped some of the bigger fines against him. So my friend went out on a limb and it it paid off for him. And it's easy, I think, to go out on a limb like this when we have absolutely nothing to lose and just absolutely everything to gain. But it's so much harder to go out on a limb like that, isn't it? When we actually have a lot to lose. In this passage, we see a story of a man who we'll find out actually did have a lot to lose. And we'll hear about that under the theme of God's unthinkable grace. But first, we'll see God's unthinkable call. Secondly, his unthinkable promises. And finally, Abraham's unthinkable response. So first, God's unthinkable call. And so first of all, we need to realize that this call that we just read about In Genesis 12, it seems unthinkable from Abram's point of view. We need to realize that Abram, he he kind of had it made. When God first called Abram, he lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, we read elsewhere in Scripture. 
And we actually know a lot about Ur, especially from archaeology. And so you can try and picture this city Abram was from in your mind. First of all, the city was massive for the time. It had a population of about 250,000 people. It was a beautiful port city. It was right on the Persian Gulf, right beside the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers as well. Ur was also an incredibly rich nation, or a rich city because of this. It had huge trade routes going as far as India. And so what the city of Ur was known for was in part its wealth and its jewels. One historian remarks that the citizens enjoyed a level of comfort unknown in other cities at the time. Ur was a beautiful place to live. The city was beautiful architecturally. It was well advanced technologically. They had an education system. They had a great library. They even had forms of plumbing and indoor heating and medicine. This was a a good place to live. And by all accounts, Abraham and Sarai in particular, they as a family were well off themselves. They were living a particularly comfortable life in this particularly wonderful city. But one day we read, the God of glory appeared to him. And our God of glory says to this rich, already elderly man, go. He says, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And in order to understand this call, we need to realize there are concentric circles here. One circle bigger than the others. So first of all, God is calling Abram away from everything dear to him, starting out with the biggest circle. He's very specific about what he's calling Abraham to leave. First of all, your country. This beautiful nation that had treated Abram so well. He's calling him to leave it behind. Next, the circle gets smaller. God says, leave your kindred. That's leave your tribe, leave your people. And then finally, he says to Abram, leave your father's house. Leave behind your immediate family. And we need to realize, especially back then, people were devoted to their nations and to their tribe and to their families. This was their security. This was their support system. This was everything to them. In a sense, this was their very identity. And God goes to Abraham and he calls him to leave it all behind and follow him instead. And he's not even going to tell him where he's going. Not yet, at least. This is an unthinkable call for Abram. But this is also an unthinkable call from our perspective, for us. Because we realize God is doing something amazing here, isn't he? We need to read this story against the backdrop of the rest of Genesis. The first 11 chapters that happened right before this. Remember, God made a wonderful creation. He was pleased with it. It was very good. And almost immediately, mankind rebelled against God and plunged themselves into sin and rebellion. And then if you read the other chapters of Genesis leading up to this, we read of mankind spiraling down into new, unheard of before scenes of violence and idolatry and pride. But in this passage, God gets to work. And he does it by calling this man out of this hometown. This man who's already old. Sometimes we forget that about Abraham, don't we? People lived longer back then, but he was already an elderly man at 75 years old. And this is when his life really begins. And he was living in his father's house as well. He had a wife, but he had no children. 
I'm sure we can imagine that would have been a painful reality for him. We need to remember at the time in particular, that would have been considered shameful as well. It might have been considered a curse from the gods at the time. More than that, we need to recognize Abram lived in the heart of idolatry. Because Ur wasn't just a beautiful and well-off city. Ur was the city of the moon god Sin. And so Ur was dominated by this huge tower in the middle, a monumental tower of solid brick with a bright blue temple to the moon god on top. And the people of Ur worshipped this god as well as hundreds or thousands of other gods. And Abram, we read elsewhere in scripture, was not an innocent bystander in Ur. He, he fully participated in this worship. Uh, Jewish tradition actually suggests that Abram's father, Terah, made his living crafting and selling idols. And Abraham joined him in the family business. That's Jewish tradition. We don't know for sure. But that's what they say. And so this is an unthinkable call, isn't it? Why would God, the God of the universe, who could have had anyone, why would he want Abraham? There were thousands, perhaps even millions of other people in the world. And some people were already serving God. We know that for sure. If you're familiar with Genesis, then maybe you know a couple chapters later, we're briefly introduced to Melchizedek. He was a godly and a righteous man, but yet God doesn't choose him. If you're familiar with your Bible, maybe you know about Job. Job himself was a righteous man, likely living around this time. God doesn't call him. God looks down and he reaches all the way to Ur of the Chaldeans, to this old man with no children to call his own. And he looks on Abram and he loves him and he chooses him for himself. He calls him to give up his identity and come to him for a new identity. But to do it, Abraham would need to lose pretty much everything. Giving up his old identity and embracing a new God-given identity. He'd need to give up his plans for his own life. Probably at this age to, to settle down and in, enjoy his wealth in his old age. But God calls him to leave everything else behind. To follow his unthinkable plan. And God's unthinkable plan is revealed in our second point. God's unthinkable promises. So as we study this text... There's a real risk that we can spend a lot of time focusing on Abraham and what he did. But if you look at this text, you'll notice there's actually a radically different emphasis. Because Genesis, as we heard up to this point, it's largely about huge global events. There's creation and then the fall into sin. There's man falling deeper into sin and rebellion until God wipes them out with a global flood. And then mankind tries to unite and work together for themselves in the beginning of Genesis chapter 11. We read there mankind talking about what they're going to do. They say, come, let us make bricks. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. But finally, in our passage, we see something radically different. A huge shift in emphasis. Our passage starts with the Lord talking. God is intervening and taking action in a new way. And he says to Abraham, go. But the focus is on what God himself will do. God tells Abraham to go and he says, I will show you the land. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and so on. And our short passage six times explicitly in our text 
And even more implicitly, God says now what he is going to do. Not what man is going to do. And what he's going to take, do is take one man from this cursed world full of violence and pain and evil and repeated judgment and suffering from sin. And he is going to lavish blessings upon him out of mere grace. Six times God says, I will. And five times he says, bless. Again, we can see concentric circles in God's promises here. God is calling him to leave his nation and his tribe and his family. And yet what God is doing is blessing him. He says to Abraham that he will make his name great. But more than that, he'll bless his descendants. He'll make them numerous and give them a beautiful land and protect them as a great nation. And finally, God says he will bless the world. He says to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we need to realize these promises aren't equal here. This is the heart of the passage. This is the heart of the matter right here. That all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. God has looked at the pain and the suffering and has gone on long enough. He has a plan to bring blessing again to the good world he created. Paul says in Galatians 3 that when God uttered these words, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. This is God's plan. Slowly but, slowly but surely, he's going to undo the curse. Undo the curse of sin and the results of sin. He will have mercy triumph over judgment, and he will turn this world back into a world of blessing for his people. And now we see he's going to do it through this guy, this man, Abraham. This is the heart of the matter. Why is God going to bless him? Well, we read in verse 2. He says, so that, that's a purpose statement. This is the reason why. So that you, Abraham, will be a blessing. That's the purpose for blessing Abraham. And though the ESV doesn't make it clear, the purpose is restated in verse 3 as well. God says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, so that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And brothers and sisters, we cannot possibly overstate, overemphasize the significance of this event in world history. This is the key to the whole book of Genesis. After this, Genesis keys on on Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and his family. This is the key to the whole Old Testament, even the key to the whole Bible and the whole of human history. Because this isn't what you are doing or what I am doing. It's not what man's doing. It's what God is doing to restore his world, to restore his people. As history unfolds and God continues to call unlikely sinners to join his family and be blessed and blessed and blessed, as he introduces himself and reveals himself, what will he say time and time again? When he introduces himself to someone new out of pure grace, he'll say to them, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And later when God acts, when Abraham's descendants of Israel rebel, what does Israel constantly say? That God remembered, that he thought back to the promises to Abraham. And so he continued to bless. He continued to preserve. And that he did throughout his word. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll see 
Though Abraham never got to see it himself, God kept every promise, didn't he? Abraham, though he didn't get to see it, his name did become great in Israel. It's still great today. His descendants did become a great, powerful nation. The Lord did protect them, blessing those who blessed them and cursing them who disdained them. But it all led up to one purpose. As one commentator says, the promise to Abram was never meant to be a promise by itself. It was meant to be a fountainhead. And the blessing would flow down to others and eventually flow down to all of the nations, affecting every family of the earth. And that's because the promise of Abraham leads us straight to Bethlehem. The promise here is about the snake crusher we heard about a few weeks ago in Genesis chapter 3. The Savior that God promised right after the fall. Jesus the Christ who would come, now we see from Abram's line. Jesus was the descendant through which all the nations, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And one day by God's grace, through Abraham's line, there would come a child. One who could finally actually reverse and remove the curse of sin and the curse of judgment and bring us back into God's favor to receive blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And when God finally sent this child, what did people say? What did they cry out to our God? Well, if you look for a moment at the very first verse in the New Testament, Matthew 1, verse 1, you can see what this is all about. Matthew 1, verse 1. There we read the story of the New Testament, in essence. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's what God is doing. Sending a Savior. And as we sang earlier, when the John the Baptist is born and the Messiah is coming, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And we sang part of his song in hymn 18. What does he shout out in praise? Zechariah bursts out in praise to God, saying, God remembered. God remembered what he said 2,000 years before Zechariah. Remembered what he said 4,000 years before us. He remembered his promise that he would bless his people who deserve to be cursed. He wouldn't leave us in sin and judgment, but he would come and rescue us. If you read in Luke, you can see Mary too, the mother of Jesus, realizing that the long-awaited Messiah had come. She refers back to these promises as well. And she is amazed. Working, stepping, doing his own plan throughout world history, and God actually did it. He actually brought this Savior He did what he said, sending someone, his own son, who could save us from our enemies, who could wash away every sin, who could bring us back to God. There's a Savior. In this passage, we don't just see God's love for Abraham, that he would pick one person out of sin and misery and bring him to himself. In this passage, we see God's love for Mary. We see God's love for Zechariah. We see God's love for you and for me. People hopelessly lost in sin, no business being blessed, no business being saved. And the Lord plucks us 
out of human history because he has a plan to bless us and to save us, and he's doing it through this man. That's what God's word is all about. The Bible is all about human history, is all about. God sees the sin and the suffering and the pain and the curses in the beginning of Genesis and going throughout the Bible even till today. Isn't there so much pain and suffering in our lives and all around us? Well, God sees it. And now he's going to act. He chooses a sinful man, Abram, for himself to save him and to bless him and make him live with him. And through him, he's going to pour out blessings all around him. He's going to bless you in ways you never imagined. Pouring out salvation and blessing on us. Though all we deserve is a curse. And as Paul will later say, for all who believe in Jesus Christ, we are the children of Abraham. And along with Abraham, we will be richly blessed. And so Abraham had to give up his identity, his nation, his tribe, his family, his false gods. But God was going to give him a new identity through this descendant in Christ. And if you go on reading, you will see God gave Abram a new identity. He took the father of none and he made him the father of many. His new name, Abraham, that's what it literally means, the father of many. He took this unrighteous man and you read in Genesis 15, he gave him a new identity. Like he gave us a new identity through Christ. On our own, we're unrighteous men and women. But in God, in Christ, we have a new identity. He declares Abraham righteous by faith. God took Abraham, this worshiper of idols, and God himself gives him a new identity. He calls him in Isaiah 41, verse 8, Abraham, my friend. By nature, we're enemies of God, but when God picks us, transforms us, cleanses us in Christ, we turn from his enemies to his dear, loved friends. And so although Abram had so much to lose, Abram went because he had everything to gain. So he left his nation and his tribe, his father's house and his gods to be with his creator, God. And we'll see that in our final point. We'll see Abram's unthinkable response. And so as we read together in Hebrews 11, Abram actually knew that he wouldn't see most if any of these promises come to fruition on this earth. But he didn't care about that. We read the remarkable truth in Isaiah, or sorry, Hebrews rather, 11. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. As we see in this passage, he moved around. He left his probably beautiful big house in Ur, and he went to living in tents, not settling in one place, but traveling throughout the land, a promise to his offspring hundreds of years later. And Abram would pack up and move on to the next place. And why would he do this? Well, we read in Hebrews 11, because he was looking forward to this city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And he was still living by faith, not by sight, when he died. He did not receive the things promised, only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that he was a foreigner and a stranger on earth. He said such things, looking for a country of his own. If he was thinking of the country he had left, he could have returned. Can you think about that? Any time, Abram could have gone back. He could have decided this wasn't the life he wanted. When he got to old age, he could have wanted to go back to his family, to his nice house, to his nice city. He didn't. 
He could have returned. But he was longing for a better country than this world had to offer. A heavenly country. So God was not ashamed to be called his God. For he has prepared a city for him. Isn't that remarkable? God wasn't ashamed to be called Abraham's God. He's not ashamed to be called our God either. And Abraham was called to wander for a little while on this earth. But God had prepared a city for him. And now Abraham, think of it, has been living in this better country, in a sense, for 4,000 years with his creator God. What grace. He had to sojourn, he had to wander on this earth, this sinful world, for a little while. Because God had such great blessings in store. And we can't wait till we get to go and live with him and with our God in the city he has designed for us as well. That's something worth giving up anything on earth for. Not just living in this city, but living with this God in the city that he has designed to live with his people, with us. This was worth giving up anything for for Abram, and it's perhaps even more clearly true today. We can see there's a lot in Abram's response that we can learn from. Uh, One preacher mentioned on this text that there's a lot of different directions you can go in a sermon on Genesis chapter 12. Uh, You can really emphasize faith, of course, right? What's Abraham known for? He's known as the great man of faith. We we can learn in how much he trusted God and his trust was justified. We can also learn, if we look at the very next passage, that Abraham's faith wasn't always so strong, was it? He gets his first major test and he messes up quite spectacularly. What a comfort that is for people like us as well. We can emphasize faith in this story. We can also emphasize the obedience of Abraham. A friend of mine once told me uh, when we were talking about this passage that God's love language is obedience. He didn't just want Abram to theoretically believe him, but he wanted him to trust him and listen to him and, and follow his call, his better plan for his life. Finally, what we could emphasize is how Abraham really did become a blessing for countless people. So often as Christians, we can focus on our God, our personal relationship, and taking blessings from God, but God calls Abraham and all his other people as well not just to be blessed, but he wants to turn them into a blessing for others. Bless others through us. And we can and we should emphasize all of these things, but this isn't the most unthinkable response of Abram in this passage. The thing that perhaps is the most shocking is that Abram's life wasn't just characterized by faith and by obedience and by sacrifice, but if you look closely at our text, after giving all this up, after answering God's unthinkable call, What his life is characterized so clearly by in these verses is worship. It seems Abraham gave up so much for the Lord already. And yet we can see in how he lived his life, how he worshipped. The privilege was all his. It was a great honor for Abraham that he got to be chosen, that he got to be loved, that he got to be the friend of this God. Before his call, he was living it up in Ur of the Chaldeans. By the end of our passage, he's a sojourner, living out of a tent. And yet we read so clearly in verse 7 of our text, he gets to Shechem, God tells him to stop. And so far, he's got nothing. He has no child, he has no land, he has no home. 
The land is full of countless Canaanites. It seems far from ever being his. And what does Abram do? In verse 7, he builds an altar to the Lord and he worships. Then the Lord moves him and his tent again. He pulls up his tent, goes elsewhere, and puts it down again. And what does he do? There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And the meaning there isn't that he sacrificed once or prayed once or called out publicly on God's name once. This was his habit. This is what his life was characterized by. This was how he lived. Thanking the God who took everything from him. Or rather, the God who gave everything to him. And as I was studying this passage, I was reminded of the story of Thomas Chalmers. Uh, I wonder if you've ever heard of Thomas Chalmers. Uh, He was also a man who had a lot to lose. Because Thomas Chalmers was a, a very, very intelligent man. And he had managed to score himself a very sweet, a very cushy job. He was a pastor. Specifically, he was a pastor in Scotland in the 1800s. And at that time, the job of being a pastor, it paid very well. It gave you a very nice house to live in. And there was realistically no way you could ever lose your job, no matter how bad you did. (laughs) Because you were appointed to the position. And so Thomas Chalmers took full advantage. He never visited anyone. He did all of his pastoral work in one day or maybe two, if he really had to. Often he would write his sermon sometime just on Sunday morning. The rest of the week he would do whatever he wanted. Why not? Actually, he usually did whatever he wanted. Uh, For up to six months every year he would spend it traveling around Europe. But then one day, Thomas's brother and his sister got terribly sick. They went downhill and downhill until eventually they died quite young. And by spending time with his sick brother and sister, Thomas was amazed because they weren't scared at all. They were excited to go. And then when Thomas himself got sick with the same disease, he wasn't excited. He was terrified. He had no idea what was going to happen to him. But by God's grace, he lived And as he recovered, he began studying the Bible with fresh eyes, and he started realizing this world isn't our home. That's why his brother and sister were fine to go. They were okay with Jesus calling them home. And when he returned to his pastoral work from his sickness, everyone could see he was a radically changed man. They started going around and visiting people constantly. He was encouraging them, even with tears. His preaching changed completely. He would devote himself to studying the world, word and expositing scripture. No longer was he urging people in his sermons to be better. He was urging people every Sunday to run to Jesus Christ and look there for a better savior. Look there for a better country while living with our God. He was no longer calling people to behave, but calling them to believe. To believe in the son of David, the son of Abraham, and to have all their sins washed away, and to be brought back to their creator God to live with him forever. Before, he held on to the fact that he had a lovely house and a big paycheck and couldn't be fired. But later on, he led a movement where pastors abandoned these homes. They left their big church buildings and their state-given salaries so that they could focus more on preaching the word 
and training ministers and caring for the sick and the poor. And in a sense, Thomas Chalmers, when he did this, he lost everything. And so did the other pastors that came with him. But he was willing and even eager to give this all up for Christ, for something so much better. When he did this, Thomas Chalmers was accused of being an irrational enthusiast. But he responded by saying that this finally, for the first time on his part, was true and rational religion, giving up anything and everything to vote his life to worshiping God. And he was right. And this is exactly what Abraham did so long ago. We can focus on his faith and his obedience and his self-sacrifice. But what we see emphasized here in our text is his worship. He gave up his old identity to live in a tent. And he went wherever God led him, building altars, calling upon the name of the Lord. No longer trying to make his own name great, as the people of Babel did, and as he surely did before God called him as well. Instead, Abraham now was devoted to making God's name great, to blessing his name. And how much more true should that be for us? Because we realize that Abraham did all this, and all he had was the promise of God's Savior, the promise of this son down the line that he believed in. But we have so much more than that, don't we? We have more than just the promise. We have seen this Savior. We can sing with Mary and Zechariah. He did it. He has come. He washed us clean, and the way he did it was more radical, more marvelous than we could ever possibly have imagined. The way he freed us from our curse and left us with only a blessing was by becoming a curse himself. The way that he freed us so that this land just becomes a temporary place and we can look forward to a better country with God, the way he did it was by leaving his glory behind, by leaving his home, by laying down his majesty. He gave up everything for me. He came down and he emptied himself, humbled himself to the point of a servant. He, he committed himself to living a life on the road. He says at one point, though he was the one through whom all things were created, the Son of Man had no place to lay down his head. He came down here and lived as a sojourner himself until he was put on a cross as a stranger, as an outcast, and even as a criminal, dying in bitter shame on a cross. He came, the promised descendant, the one who could save us, by taking the curse upon himself so that we, along with Abraham, might be blessed. And so when it comes to following the Savior back to God, in a sense, we have everything to lose. We really do have a lot to give up. For following Christ, Jesus is very honest. He says if we commit our lives to following him, it involves taking up our cross. It may involve giving up family. It might involve losing friends. It will certainly cost sacrificing time and money and effort. But yet, brothers and sisters, for following Jesus Christ, the privilege is all ours. It is a joy to lay down these things for Christ, the one who laid down so much for us. Because coming to Christ, we lose our sin and our shame and our curse and our slavery. And in return, in Christ, we gain God himself back. We are created to live with him and for him. And in Christ, we gain new life. In him, we're told we gain the world. And as we live here as sojourners for a little while, looking forward to living even closer to our God with Abraham, 
in the perfect city, in the better country than this world has to offer. The one whose architect and builder is God. And so what choice do we have in response simply to do what we're doing right now? To worship. To worship this unthinkably great God and this glorious God every day of our sojourn until finally, by God's grace, he leads us to our forever home. Amen. Let's sing together in response.